It's the 6th of January, the Feast of Epiphany, in the year 2008, and this is Father Z, back with another podcast. Today we welcome back as a guest, our frequent guest, St. Pope Leo the Great, who died in 461. He's here to talk to us about the Feast of Epiphany, and uh, then we'll talk about this great feast, some of its customs, and then I will react to some of your feedback. Uh, First we'll hear about the comparison made between St. Athanasius, whom I talked about the other day in a podcast. Uh, the comparison made between him and the late Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. And then we'll hear some voicemail from a famous blogger in England. We are happy to have back with us today St. Pope Leo the Great, Leo I, who became Pope in 440 and who died in 461. Now, Leo was Pope in very turbulent times. The empire was falling apart, and various peoples like the Vandals and the Goths and the Franks were pressing in on the West. And uh, so Leo, in this terrible vacuum, uh, was called on to exercise great civil leadership as well as religious and spiritual leadership. Uh, there, are all, there are also great tensions with the East at the time. And uh, Leo was a, a brilliant orator who was able to draw very effectively on the theology of uh, great writers like St. Augustine and others uh, in presenting very clearly an orthodox expression of Catholic doctrine against uh, many different groups of heretics who were still around at the time, uh, such as Arians and Manichaeans and so forth. 
uh, Leo's contributions to Orthodox Christianity and uh, actually Christology, uh, the Church's teaching about who Christ is, especially in his two natures. Uh, his contributions are really unparalleled. And his preaching, the way he expressed it, both in his sermons and also in his letters, uh, was uh, expressed in absolutely brilliant Latin. And his teaching was strongly pastoral as well. It was Leo's constant desire to help his flock there in Rome uh, for whom uh, he felt great uh, great solicitude as as the bishop of rome it was his constant desire to help them become uh, holy humble servants of christ and he's always admonishing them in his sermons to be forgiving towards their neighbors and also to be very solicitous about the poor uh, he wants them to exercise concrete uh, acts of mercy especially toward the poor and uh, and to fast and to uh, and to pray and to be very humble and uh, so he is we have many of his sermons that have come down to us and we're very fortunate to have them because uh, this wonderful pastoral solicitude and doctrinal clarity is uh, on display by means of his fantastic oratorical skills expressed in some of the best Latin, the greatest Latin that has come down to us from ancient times. I think it's important to remember that when you read Leo, you should always try to read him out loud because, um, and, and perhaps try to picture the environment that he was in with the clergy of Rome and uh, civil representatives and the people of Rome all pressing in and listening to this great orator who very carefully sculpted his sermons and uh, try to uh, visualize them with accompanying gestures, for example. Um, we have eight sermons on Epiphany by Pope Leo. In these sermons, uh, over the years, he addresses various themes, and many of them recur throughout his, his preaching on Epiphany. Uh, for example, he speaks of the blindness of the Jews, uh, who, for Leo, uh, are embodied in the person of Herod. Uh, and so he sometimes speaks very dramatically. He'll speak directly to Herod in his Epiphany sermons, though not in the selection that we're going to hear today. Um, but if the Jews, uh, for example, if they did not see Christ for who he, he was, he truly is, Leo is very strong in pointing out that the Gentiles did in fact recognize the light of Christ. The Jews are blind, but the Gentiles open their eyes and they see who Christ is. And so light also is a recurring theme of his Epiphany sermons. Uh, Leo refers to uh, the Magi, the wise men, uh, they follow the light of the miraculous star, and in them are embodied all of the nations. They are the representatives of all the peoples of the world who uh, come willingly to see Christ and recognize who he is in, uh, in humility. And uh, in the excerpt that we're going to hear uh, also, um, which was his third sermon on Epiphany. In some collections, it's listed as sermon number 33, uh, preached on 6th of January on Epiphany in 443. Uh, Leo calls, uh, talks about the, the star, and I want you to tune your ears 
to hear uh, what he says about the star. It's really quite interesting. As well as uh, listening to what he says about blindness and about light. Well, let's, without any further delay, let's get right into Leo. Let's have uh, all of the Latin today. We'll do the English first, but then I'll give you all of the Latin so that you can hear, uh, get this magnificent language into your ears. The loving providence of God determined that in the last days he would aid the world, set on its course to destruction. He decreed that all nations should be saved in Christ. A promise had been made to the holy patriarch Abraham in regard to these nations. He was to have a countless progeny, born not from his body, but from the seed of faith. His descendants are therefore compared with the array of the stars. The father of all nations was to hope not in an earthly progeny, but in a progeny from above. Let the full number of the nations now take their place in the family of the patriarchs. Let the children of the promise now receive the blessing in the seed of Abraham, the blessing renounced by the children of his flesh. In the persons of the Magi, let all people adore the Creator of the universe. Let God be known, not in Judea only, but in the whole world, so that His name may be great in all Israel. Dear friends, now that we have received instruction in this revelation of God's grace, let us celebrate with spiritual joy the day of our first harvesting, of the first calling of the Gentiles. Let us give thanks to the merciful God, who has made us worthy, in the words of the Apostle, to share the position of the saints in light, who has rescued us from the power of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. As Isaiah prophesied, the people of the Gentiles who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who dwelt in the region of the shadow of death a light has dawned. He spoke of them to the Lord. 
the Gentiles, who do not know you, will invoke you, and the peoples, who knew you not, will take refuge in you. This is the day that Abraham saw and rejoiced to see, when he knew that the sons born of his faith would be blessed in his seed, that is, in Christ. Believing that he would be the father of the nations, he looked into the future, giving glory to God, in full awareness that God is able to do what he has promised. This is the day that David prophesied in the Psalms, when he said, All the nations that you have brought into being will come, and fall down in adoration in your presence, Lord, and glorify your name. Again, the Lord has made known his salvation. In the light of the nations he has revealed his justice. This came to be fulfilled, as we know, from the time when the star beckoned the three wise men out of their distant country and led them to recognize and adore the King of heaven and earth. The obedience of the star calls us to imitate its humble service, to be servants as best we can, of the grace that invites all men to find Christ. Dear friends, you must have the same zeal to be of help to one another. Then, in the kingdom of God, to which faith and good works are the way, you will shine as children of the light, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with God the Father and the Holy Spirit for ever and ever. Amen. Ex sermonibus sancti Leonis Magni Pape. Providencia misericordiae Dei, Dispositum habens perunti mundo in novissimis temporibus subvenire, salvationem omnium gentium prefinivit in Christo. Dequibus, condam beatissimo patriarche Abrahe innumerabilis fuerat promissa successio, non carni semine, sed fidei fecunditate generanda, et ideo stellarum multitudini comparata, ut ab omnium gentium patre non terena, sed celestis progenies speraretur. Intret, intret in patria carum familiam gentium plenitudo, et benedictionem in semine abrahe, qua se filii carnis abdicant, filii promissionis accipiant. Adorent in tribus magis omnes populi universitatis auctorem, et non in Judea tantum Deus, sed in toto orbe sit notus, ut ubique in Israel sit magnum nomineus. Hisiditur dilectissimi, divine gratiae misteriis eruditi, diem primitiarum nostrarum, et incohationem vocationis gentium rationabili gaudio celebremus, gratias agentes misericordi Deo, qui dignos nos fecit, sicudait apostolus, in partem sorti sanctorum in lumine, qui eripuit nos de potestate tenebrarum, et transtudit in regnum filii dilectioni sue. 
quoniam sicut profetavit Isaias, gentium populus, qui sedebat in tenebris, vidit lucem magnam, et qui habitabant in regione umbre mortis, lux orta est eis. De quibus idem dicit ad dominum, gentes, que te non noverunt, invocabunt te, et populi qui te nescierunt, ad te confugient. Hunc diem, Abraham vidit et gavisus est, cum benedicendos fidei sue filios in semine suo, quod est Christus, agnovit, et omnium se futurum gentium patrem credendo prospexit, dans gloriam Deo, et plenissime sciens coniam quod promisit potens est et facere. Hunc diem David in salmis canebat dicens, omnes gentes quasquumque fecisti venient et adorabunt coram te, Domine, et glorificabunt nomen tuum. Et illud, notum fecit Dominus salutare suum, ante conspectum gentium revelavit justitiam suam. Quod utique exinde fieri novimus, ex quo tres magos de longinquitate sue regionis excitos, ad coniocendum et adorandum regem celi et terre stella perducet, cuius utique famulatus ad formam nosui hortatur obsequii, ut huic gratie, que omnes invitat ad Christum, quantum possumus serviamus. In quo studio, dilectissimi, omnes vobis invicem prodesse debetis, ut in regno dei, ad quod recta fide et bonis operibus prevenitur, sicut lucis filis plendeatis, per Dominum nostrum, Jesum Christum, qui cum Deo Patre et Spiritu Sancto vivit et regnat per omnia secula seculorum. Amen. That was part of Sermon 33, preached on Epiphany by Leo the Great in 443. And did you hear how, at the end, Leo says that Christians must be like little stars? Uh, it's as if we have to bring light to the blind. We have to be like guides, just like this little star was a guide to the to the to the magi representing all of the gentiles all the peoples of the world we have to be like the star and he calls the star a servant it's like this little serving star uh, sparkling in a dark world uh, glittering and trying to attract people who are both eager to see the light but also uh, trying sometimes in vain to bring light to those who are blinded by the world. And uh, all Christians should be like this little servant star. And hopefully, with God's help, by our words and our actions, and as Leo, uh, Leo the Great would say, and 
almost all of his sermons, by concrete works of mercy toward the needy, uh, we might be able to help some people come to the light of Christ, in whom uh, alone is his salvation. And on another note, uh, that image of sight and blindness that Pope Leo uses in his Epiphany sermons calls to my mind, at least, uh, some of the imagery in the ancient prayers uh, for Epiphany that have come down to us. Uh, prayers for Mass. Some of them might have come down even from the time of Pope Leo himself. Uh, many of our orations for Mass come from that era of the 5th century and uh, the the environment of Rome. And in our Epiphany prayers there are uh, we find verbs of perceiving and and uh, discerning and language about sight, uh, which really shouldn't surprise us uh, for a feast called Epiphany, if you stop to think of it. Epiphany in Greek means manifestation or revelation. So it shouldn't surprise us that we have perceiving words and sight words in our prayers. Still, it's, it's helpful to remember uh, that uh, how we pray today reveals a long history of prayer, going back to the very roots of our Catholic experience. And it, it shaped the way uh, that we have thought about certain things all down the centuries. Uh, the preaching of, of a pope like Leo uh, might you know, have a connection with the way that we still pray in our prayers, at least in the Latin text at Mass today. Uh, our theology and our prayer form a whole each are inextricably bound up the one with the other. Remember that the way we pray has a reciprocal relationship with what we believe. And uh, so if we pray a certain way, we will come to believe certain things. But, of course, if we believe certain things, that will influence the way that we pray. And so much of what we believe as Catholic Christians comes uh, come from this patristic period. And Leo the Great was one of the the mighty theologians uh, in the 5th century who helped to shape our understanding of Christ and defend an orthodox and Catholic faith against uh, attacks of many kinds. the Feast of Epiphany. And this uh, funny-looking word comes from the Greek for a divine manifestation or a revelation. 
The Latin Church's liturgy for this feast, especially in its antiphons for Vespers, reflect the tradition that Epiphany was thought to be the day not only when the Magi came to adore Christ, but also the very day that Jesus changed water into wine at Cana, and also uh, the very day he was baptized by St. John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And each of these three mysteries reveals Jesus as more than a mere man. He is also revealed as the man who is God. And there are many epiphanies uh, in Scripture, uh, sometimes called theophanies. Uh, for example, uh, we can think of Moses standing before the sight of God in the burning bush, or Elijah in the cave looking out through the crack as God passed across the, the front of the cave, or at the transfiguration, for example. Those are all epiphanies or theophanies. The history of the Feast of Epiphany is really complex. It stretches back to the Church's earliest times. In the East, Epiphany was of much greater importance than Christmas, which was uh, a relative latecomer among the feasts of the Church. In the West, uh, Christmas, the celebration of Christmas actually came first, and, and Epiphany developed a little bit later. But uh, in many places today, Epiphany, and not Christmas, is when people exchange gifts in imitation of the Magi, uh, bringing gifts to Christ, uh, rather than at Christmas. In fact, uh, Epiphany, uh, which is also called Twelfth Night, uh, is a time of great uh, and beautiful customs as well, uh, very traditional things, not only giving gifts, for example, uh, but also uh, eating certain foods like uh, king's cake and lamb's wool. And um, there are blessings, too. Matter of fact, people would bless apple trees at Epiphany time by pouring uh, apple cider on them. And there is a special blessing in the Rituali Romanum for hallowing homes using blessed chalk. And so you'd bless chalk in Epiphany. And then you'd write on the on the lintels of the door the year and the names for the magi and um, as a matter of fact uh, you you write uh, for example this year you would write uh, twenty right and then a plus sign and then c and a plus and an m and a plus and a b and a plus and then zero eight and so we have the year embracing the initials for the Magi, Gaspar, Melchior, and Baltazar, that G and Gaspar, the G and the C are, are related to each other um, because of the way that they're made in the mouth. And so, so they're sometimes interchangeable. Now, I, some years ago, when I wrote about this in my column in The Wanderer, uh, someone wrote back to me suggesting that that CMB really stands for Christus Mansionem Benedicat, may Christ bless this dwelling. But that CMB in this case is really only a coincidence. It doesn't mean that. It really does stand for the initials of the Magi. Uh, and of course those names of the Magi are traditional. They're not in scripture. In some ancient authors uh, we hear there may have, they thought that there were as many as maybe 24 Magi. Um, and their initials would, I think, fill up a, a doorpost pretty fast. Um, some people call the uh, the three stars in the belt of the constellation Orion the three kings. 
And uh, in Italy, where I uh, spent a lot of time, uh, children wait for uh, la befana uh, from the Italian word epifania. And la befana is like an old woman on a broom. Not so much a witch. What happened, according to legend, is an old woman was invited by the Magi to accompany them on their journey to find the newborn king, and she uh, declined because she was busy cleaning. She was sweeping her house. Uh, But then she realized her error, and she followed after the Magi, but they were too far ahead of her, and so she's still searching for Jesus, riding around in her broomstick. And uh, very much like Santa Claus, she comes and visits homes and leaves toys and candy for good children and the proverbial lumps of coal for naughty children. I'm sure that probably these days, she, instead of coal, which might not you know, mean much to kids these days, she'd probably leave like a, a cell phone that didn't you know, get very good coverage or something like that, something to, to, to vex them. Uh, and whereas Santa Claus gets uh, milk and cookies by fireplaces at Christmas time, uh, Italians instead leave uh, wine and oranges for La Befana, which I think I would probably prefer also. But in any event, Epiphany is a, a beautiful feast with a very long, uh, very long history. In in many ways, uh, the mysteries of Epiphany have received greater theological and spiritual reflection in the East and West, even in Christmas, uh, to which it is so very closely bound. Since my last podcast, in which I read a passage of St. Athanasius of Alexandria, I received some feedback via email from rather more traditionalist Catholics, offering me their insights about how the late French Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre must be acknowledged as a modern-day St. Athanasius. Uh, Their argument goes something like this. 
St. Athanasius, was a great defender of orthodoxy, and he was wrongly excommunicated by Pope Liberius. Marcel Lefebvre, in the 20th century, was a defender of orthodoxy, and he was wrongly excommunicated by Pope John Paul II. Therefore, uh, Lefebvre is like a modern-day Athanasius, and also, therefore, the Society of St. Pius X is like a modern-day Catholic force fighting the good fight faithfully against the theologically errant modernists, etc. Well, I find this argument very weak, and I see nothing compelling in the false comparison of Athanasius and Marcel Lefebvre. And we can drill into this subject a little bit, and uh, you'll know why. Uh, shortly, this uh, comparison just doesn't hold water for me. Uh, first of all, we need a little background. Now, Athanasius was Bishop of Alexandria at a time when the Arian heresy was tearing the church apart. Uh, civil authorities, such as the emperor, were taking sides in the matter because religion was an important force for social unity or disunity. And remember that the Arians uh, did not hold that Christ was God. Uh, for them, Christ was a creature, a very great creature in a very privileged place, but there was a time when he was not. Uh, now those who held the Catholic faith, uh, as defined at the Council of Nicaea, held that Christ uh, is in fact God, and there was never a time when he was not. He was God from all eternity, therefore he's not a creature. And this uh, division between the Arians and uh, and the Catholics uh, of Nicene faith uh, tore the church apart. And the Emperor Constantine, who had convoked the Council of Nicaea, uh, which focused on the Arian question, had originally supported Athanasius, who had been uh, at Ni the Council of Nicaea with his bishop when he was still a deacon. But Constantine died, and Constantius who took over, was an Arian. Now, in the meantime, uh, Pope Liberius in Rome uh, had been uh, a supporter of Athanasius uh, and set against the Arians. But Constantius imprisoned Liberius and then exiled him and uh, had him tortured and so forth, placed under great duress, in an attempt to force him to support Arianism and to contemn Athanasius, who was a real thorn in the side of, of Constantius. And eventually, under duress, in those extreme conditions and exile and so forth, Liberius broke down and excommunicated Athanasius. Uh, Liberius also signed a theological statement that was not really an Arian profession as such, but was ambiguous enough that it could be read by both Catholics and Arians as their own. You see, Liberius originally refused to sign a clearly Arian statement, but eventually he broke down, and in his weakness, he signed something that was theologically fuzzy. And remember, all this Liberius did under extreme duress. And we have letters of Pope Liberius. Uh, I think we have four letters, if I remember correctly, and most scholars hold these letters to be authentic. But the odd thing about them is that they express things exactly contrary to everything that Liberius had done before his exile. Uh, when he had 
supported Athanasius, and so it's pretty clear that Liberius was forced to sign letters and documents and so forth that were composed for him. Uh, so we can say, we can we could admit that uh, Pope Liberius was weak on a human level. We can say, yes, it did indeed uh, excommunicate Athanasius. However, he did so under duress. Uh, nor did Liberius, in signing anything that uh, was tainted by Arianism, or, or ambiguity about Arianism, uh, nor did he make any kind of doctrinal statement which is binding on the faithful. And so, you know, we don't, it's not a question of, of uh, him doing something in the name of infallibility that was heretical. That absolutely did not happen. Uh, furthermore, uh, Athanasius seemed to know exactly what was going on because when he uh, received notice of the excommunication, he refused to accept it uh, with the explanation that he knew that Liberius was under duress when he made it. Now let's get back to that comparison of Athanasius and Marcel Lefebvre. Now, first of all, Archbishop Lefebvre who in his day was a very great man, a great uh, missionary in Africa and so forth. Archbishop Lefebvre was not excommunicated by a pope, as Athanasius had been uh, by Liberius, who was under duress. Lefebvre's excommunication resulted from his having violated the Code of Canon Law, which was entirely known to him. Uh, he was excommunicated by the law itself, not by a decree. Uh, by the very fact that he consecrated bishops without a mandate from the Holy See, uh, he incurred an excommunication. Just by the very fact of it having been done, it didn't need any kind of decree at all. John Paul II did not excommunicate Marcel Lefebvre. And so there is no parallel in the way that uh, Athanasius and Lefebvre were received their excommunications. Moreover, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre intentionally violated the will of Pope John Paul II in a matter that the Pope had complete authority over, regardless of their disagreements about what you know should have happened. Lefebvre, as a Catholic bishop, was bound to obey the Pope in this matter, and he knew the law very clearly. It wasn't a secret and this was a matter of ecclesiastical discipline, not of theological doctrine. And yet, uh, Marcel Lefebvre did not obey. And on the historical level, even just considering the context of the two different excommunications, the parallel breaks down. In the 20th century, there was no influence of civil authority pressing in on all the parties, or threats of exile, or torture, or duress. Now, I suspect that if there was any duress brought to bear on anyone, it was probably being brought to bear on the elderly Archbishop Lefebvre. Uh, by those young man, men around him who were very determined to have a certain kind of outcome. And if that is the case, then I suppose we could argue that uh, that, that duress might have uh, influenced uh, Marcel Lefebvre enough to have mitigated his responsibility in the, uh, in the act of consecrating the bishops, and therefore uh, might have mitigated the canonical penalty as well. Uh, but that is a matter for canonical trial. It's way beyond my pay scale, but it's something that, that might be considered. In any event, there is no parallel between 
Archbishop Lefebvre and St. Athanasius. And if you hear this parallel being made, you should probably just smile politely, not get into a big argument about it, but also don't be taken in by it either. The parallel simply doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Uh, the late Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre was a great missionary in his day. He did a great deal for the church in Africa, and for that we must be absolutely grateful to him. Yeah, he was a staunch defender of the church's liturgical tradition, and we can be very grateful to him for that. Uh, but he did uh, create um, a rift in the church, uh, which uh, is a little hard to define exactly what it is. Uh, but he was no Athanasius, and not being treated as a figure as titanic as St. Athanasius was, takes nothing away from Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. Across the desert sand, got a mandolin and a ragtime band. A week three kings had a few rehearsals and we hit the road. Hired a couple of camels for the whole show. Came up with a clever name by which we're known. A week three kings of following a star that was foretold. To find a child who smiled with light the world and I'm always happy to get feedback and messages via the voicemail numbers I set up uh, both in the USA and in the UK. And I have one recent message from a very famous blogger in England, Damien Thompson. I'm sure you've gone to see his blog. Here's what uh, he has to say. Our father is Damien Thompson here from London, uh, wishing you a happy new year and thank you for your very supportive blog the other day. Just to let you know that on the blog now, um, the servers are down just at the moment, but it's just coming back up soon. Um, I'm conducting a little experiment where I'm asking anybody who's interested to email uh, an address um, to give their nomination for who they'd like to see as the next Archbishop of Westminster. It's just a little exercise in direct democracy, 
um, traditional Catholics never get asked their opinion about anything by the hierarchy, least of all who they'd like to see as their, um, as their shepherds. So um, it's a little experiment. Thought I'd tell you about it. Okay, very much hope to meet sometime in 2008. Thanks, Father. Well, Damien, I'm sure that uh, that is going to rattle some cages on the sceptered isle. Uh, what you are proposing is intriguing, uh, though I think it might be a little hard to get much that is useful out of uh, a method that is so completely open. Um, I uh, like the idea of, of people being able to express their rightful aspirations, especially in regard to who they have as their pastors. Uh, nevertheless, I'm not sure that everybody's opinion about this is of equal value. And uh, so whether or not this uh, very populist approach might not muddy the waters uh, a little bit, uh, I, I'm not quite sure. But I do hope that this uh, little initiative creates uh, more light about the subject than it does heat. That's all I have time for today. Please come and visit at the blog, wdtprs.com. What does the prayer really say? That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. I hope you and yours are enjoying the first fruits of this wonderful new year of salvation and also the beautiful Feast of Epiphany. And please pray for me as I will for you. <laughs>